Hi, I'm Janet Deneef, founder and director of the Ubud Writers and Readers Festival. You are about to hear one of our highlight conversations recorded live for our 2023 festival, which explored our theme, Atita Wartamana Anagata, Past, Present, Future. And if you enjoy this session, please consider making a donation to the Ubud Writers and Readers Festival. As a not-for-profit organisation, we depend on your generous support to help us survive. To learn more about how to contribute, visit ubudwritersfestival.com forward slash support dash us. In the meantime, settle in and let the magic of our 20th anniversary festival continue. Um, good morning again, and sorry for the earlier mishap. <laughs> I just can't wait to be having this conversation with you. Um, as mentioned earlier, as someone who worked in forest conservation, I looked up to your work, and um, for many years when we designed our paralegal training for community on the grassroots, we look at the Chipko movements as the one thing that relates to us as people from developing countries, but people whose life are close to the land. Um, what would be your advice for people like me, and I guess so many in the audience who are feeling inspired to be doing the kind of work that's close to what you have started, but might not have found their path? You know, I never give advice. <laughs> find it a bit arrogant. Um, I've learned from others. I learned from the Chipko sisters. And uh, I share my experience. Um, and this much I've learned over my 50 years of ecological activism, that everyone has knowledge. You know, I was, I was doing my PhD in quantum theory. And before that, I'd was training in the nuclear establishment in India, and in the head goes there, you know, that you know more than others. And then I went, I got involved in the Chipko movement because I saw a forest disappear and Chipko was starting. Chipko means to hug. And women from the villages of my region, which is the central India where the Ganges uh, starts and its tributaries start, they said, we are going to hug the trees. You will have to kill us before you kill the trees. And I learned then that they knew so much. They knew every herb. They knew, they knew forestry management of such detail that they knew exactly how much of a branch they should cut so that the tree itself, it, its regeneration does not stop. And uh, so I said, it's arrogant to think just because you go to university, do a PhD, you know, you have some exceptional knowledge. They're different, they, they can't do quantum theory. But they are my professors of biodiversity and ecology. And the second thing I learned from there is, because in the, the forestry that was introduced, to the rich tropical world where the rich tropical forests are was a commercial forestry. Mm. Yeah? About monocultures, about timber extraction. Mm. It was not about the forest. Mm. It was really treating the forests as timber mines. Mm. And it's the women who said, you think, I must tell you this because they came out during the day with lanterns. And of course the police was there and the officials were there and says, you foolish women, can't you see the sun is out? You don't need the lantern. And this is not for the sun, it's for you. Because you're blind, you think these forests are timber mines, just this much square foot of timber. But these are our mothers. They gave us soil and water and fresh air, beautiful you know, in the local language, you know, mitti pani or bayar, you know, mitti soil, pani water, bayar, the purest of air and oxygen. 
So they showed the connections between forests and water and rivers. And when the big devastating flood took place in 1978 in the Ganges, an entire mountain slipped and created a dam of about four miles long. When that burst, it caused floods all the way to Calcutta. That's when the government realized the women were right in saying, these forests protect water. That what they were getting out of revenues for timber was nothing compared to the amount they were spending now on disasters. Uh, so the interconnectedness. And the third thing I learned was, you know, we're always made to think, oh, life in the villages, tough, drudgery, hard work, because made, we've been made brainwashed to think that working is a curse. And the fossil fuel age is really to get rid of work. Mm. Every efficiency is measured in terms of how much, how many farmers you could throw out of work, how many workers you could throw out of work. Mm. Now they say 99% of humanity can be thrown out by robots and artificial intelligence. We don't need humanity. Um, and I watched how you know the women would go to the forest, collect the fodder, collect the timber, come back and do farming. In our region, men and women share the cooking. But at the end of the day, they would then sit together and dance. You know? And I said, this idea that hard work is a drudgery is a very false construct. Work for life, work for sustaining life is not just the most meaningful work, and it's the economy of care in which women participate. But it is regenerative work. Because how do our culture, how does Bali have all this rich culture? Mm. You know, it comes out of these rice paddies. All of these temples supported by it. So those were the lessons I learned. And I think those are lessons we all can learn. So we all can learn what's our little piece of work. What's our particular knowledge? You know, what's, what's the area in which I'm an expert? I might not be an expert like someone else, but I'm an expert. What's the kind of art that I'm an artist in? And what's the kind of writing that I'm able to do at my level? Mm. So I realize that false universalisms are the biggest hindrance for our finding our own potential. That there's nothing like uniformity in nature. And from the forest we learn diversity. And the diversity within each and every one of with us. Each and every one of us. Yeah. I really like that um, economy of care mm. instead of economy of scale we always talked about. Mm. And I wonder kind of oftentimes the idea of forest conservation often plays in the in the position as if it sits in the opposite direction of development and as if we need to sacrifice forests to grow more food for our growing population. Um, how do you think we should be thinking about this as you mentioned forest is diversity? at the same time, um, expansion, or maybe there's another way in thinking of how we could grow more food, mm. healthier food, nutritious food, for growing population without destroying all of the forests that we have. So, you know, here in Indonesia, you have the tragedy of the palm oil destroying the forests. And sadly, that model is getting exported everywhere. People are destroying tropical forests to, grow, to grow, grow palm oil, which then gets used to drive cars as biofuel. It gets used to destroy other people's food. You know, our wonderful edible oils, our mustards and our coconuts and our sesames, destroyed for palm oil. Mm. Uh, but it's in every, everything that you use. I think it's the most pervasive 
industrial raw material right now. Uh, beginning with Chipko all the way to now, I've just done a book last year. I was asked to write on the economy of care because you know we lived through COVID and lockdown and frankly all that people had was care. If they didn't have care, they didn't survive. If they had care, there was a chance they will survive. So I was asked to write this book, but I wrote it on From Greed to Care. How did the dominant economy not just become an economy of greed, but it only measures greed and it only rewards greed, and it punishes care. Hmm. It punishes care first by not seeing it through blindness. But it punishes care, you know, by, if it does, you say, but this is not real work. The issue I said earlier, women don't work, you know. You fill a form, and if there's a, a, a column, you know, what's your work? And women who work morning till night, right, I don't work, because they've been made to I'm think. Employed. Work is going out and working for someone else, and getting a salary, and that's work. So real work, which is the expenditure of energy, it's measured in joules, you know? Okay. It's the expenditure of energy. Women are spending their energy, and if you actually do, if you look at the statistics, women's work is what's holding society, you know? So I started to, Look at how do the economies that sustain life work? How do economies of nature work? Does nature keep extracting water from a river till it's dry? No. Nature circulates the water. The water flows through the basin. I just saw the irrigation channels are full of water. In other places where you don't have community management of water, here you do. Mm then water gets mined. And if a hotel resort has more power, they'll divert all the water from the farmer's fields. And before you know it, you have a famine. You know, every time I, uh, at least we have glass bottles, but every time I see a plastic water bottle, I just think of how in no time by destroying water and polluting water, we created an economy of drinking oil. Because when we suck out water, we use oil. You know, I've worked with wonderful women in Plachimada, mm -hmm. in South Kerala, which is water abundant. And then Coca-Cola came and set up a plant, 1.5 million dollar, uh, liters extracted daily and then there was a water famine. And the women were walking 10 miles till a woman elder said, why should we walk further? Coca-Cola should shut down. And they started a satyagraha, you know, the, f the force for truth at the gates of the Coca-Cola plant and asked me to come and join on the first anniversary. I went because I couldn't understand. Why would people be fighting Coca-Cola? I know it's not a very pleasant drink, <laughs> but, but why would women be resisting? And then I realized 1.5 million liters, and what's left is heavy metals. So it's totally polluted, you can't drink it. And in three years' struggle, they shut this Coca-Cola. I think it's the first time in the history of Coca-Cola. A Coca-Cola plant was shut down by women. But you know, the extraction is oil, and then that bottle of plastic is oil. It's petrochemical, yeah? So we're, we're eating oil, we're drinking oil. The question you asked is, how can we feed the growing population? You know, in 84, having learned so much from Chipko and the forest, and the two lessons I learned from Chipko was, the reason people don't see the diversity of the forest is they have this disease, which I named monoculture of the mind. You know? The monoculture of the mind only looks at what you can make money out of. 
And you might have 1,000 species in the forest, you don't see them. Mm. You only see what you can take and extract. And the second thing, of course, I learned was there's economy of nature, there's economy of sustenance, which primarily women, and there's market economies. And in the market itself, there's local economies, there's national economies, and there's a global economy. Now, an ordinary peasant of Bali will not be participating in the global economy. It's the corporations that do that. Mm. They are the players in that economy. The fact that that economy only measures extraction, and A, it doesn't see diversity, it's blind to diversity. Two, it does not see the circular. In the circle, you must go back. You know, your theme of this festival is, hmm. is Atit Varthman and Anagat. Yeah. Time is a cycle. Time is not a linear flow. And that's why the Atit past is in the present and is shaping the future. Sometimes what happens is someone else's past shapes our future. That is the development model. Yeah? yeah. I call it maldevelopment in my book, Staying Alive. Mal because it's masculine, it's patriarchal, but also because it's a distorted development. Because real development grows from within. A seed grows into a plant from within. A fetus grows into an adult from the inner logic. Everything living grows from within outwards. And it grows through cycles. It grows through cycles of renewal. The rivers, the streams, even life itself. You know, I'm, I'm writing a new book on climate change and the future of food. Because it's so messed up, the food issue. Uh, there's no miracle bigger than the green leaf. It takes the carbon dioxide and with the free energy of the sun, gives us food and gives us oxygen to breathe. This is what the Jipco sisters were telling us. Yeah? They didn't know photosynthesis, but they understood these processes. And it's the same process that is the solution to climate change, but it's the same process that's the solution to hunger. Because that, you know, from turning carbon dioxide into the carbohydrate, the molecule of life, is food. Now, the more intense you make it in diversity, right now when we say intensification, we mean two things. Chemicals, more chemicals, and more external fossil energy. But that's the reason we are having all the problems we are having. The buildup of carbon dioxide, the disappearance of species, the degradation of food. So I did a study on Punjab, which is where the Green Revolution was first introduced mm. in the 60s, mm. which is just a name for a not green revolution. <laughs> Anything yeah? but green. Anything but green. And not a revolution, you know. Revolutions happen from the bottom up. This was from the top down. Buy our fertilizers, buy our fertilizers. Fertilizers are fossil fuel. They disguise fossil fuel. For every kilogram of urea, there's two liters of diesel hiding in it. Hmm. But we don't know people who are fighting oil. They're not fighting the oil in the food, which is the most immediate place to begin. Yeah? So I said, they're very clever. They measure yield per acre. And everyone says yield per acre is feeding us. Hmm. But this is a total misconception. Because the yield only measures the commodity that left the farm. Mm. It doesn't tell you what it was used for. It doesn't tell you it was used for biofuel. It doesn't tell you it was used for animal feed. It doesn't tell you it was used for raw material. It's not feeding the 90% corn and soya of the world, GMO corn and soya right now, goes for biofuel and animal feed. It's not feeding anybody. It's contributing to hunger. So I said, I'm going to measure nutrition per acre. Hmm. And our study is enough that I hope some of you will come sometime 
to Navdanya where every year we've just finished our annual course, but we do this one month course on returning to the earth, both in our minds and through our hands, by growing food in the right way, protecting seeds in the right way. Um, so we said, we'll measure nutrition, not yield, because yield doesn't tell you what's the state of the soil, doesn't tell you what happened to the water. It needs 10 times more water to farm with chemicals. And that's why you have water famine everywhere. It is dispossessing farmers, and new studies are showing the nutrition is 70 to 80% less. So you might wait and say it's 10 kilograms, but it's only two kilograms worth of food. Mm. You know? So you're not getting nourishment. And then you have all the externalities, the greenhouse gases, the pollution, the toxics, the disappearing insects. So we said we are going to measure nutrition and health per acre, not yield per acre. And our work is showing that we can feed two times India's population by protecting biodiversity. Because biodiversity does three things for you. First, it is what really weaves the web of life. So you don't need the chemicals, you know? It renews your fertility, it renews, it, biodiversity is the best, con best control. You don't need to spray pesticides. Uh, biodiversity is the best water conservation. So biodiversity is, you know, provides the ecological functions for you to do agriculture. But more than that, the more the biodiversity in the soil, the more the microbes, because the soil is not inert, the soil is not an empty container, as the chemical agriculture says. Soil is the most complex ecosystem. And in it are these beautiful, in organic soils, in chemical soils, they disappear. In our studies, we are finding 33,600% more fungi. Now, the fungi pick up minerals wherever they are and bring it to the plant, and the plant gives them the carbohydrates and the food. So the plant is giving the food to the fungi, and the fungi are giving food to the plant. This is symbiosis, working together. And the more the, the soil has nutrition, the more the fungi gives to the plant, the more the plant has nutrition, the more it grows, the photosynthesis can increase five times more. The more it grows, the more food it can give to the fungi, everyone grows. Everything grows. Yeah? So we said biodiversity intensification rather than chemical intensification, and as I said, two times India's population, we can feed with all the nutrition all the iron, all the vitamin A, you don't need the golden rice that is being pushed next to you in Philippines by dear Mr. Bill Gates. Um, we threw it out in 2000 from India. But he takes everything that has been rejected and resurrects it. Because along with this is 80 patterns, 80 patterns linked to golden rice. Yeah? So when you ask, how do we feed the world? We feed the world by growing food and nutrition. And more importantly than that, I think it's very important that we give up the anthropocentric arrogance that was created as part of colonialism. You know, we were made to think the only species for which the planet is is the humans, and that too, the privileged humans. The colonizing humans can take anything from anywhere. But food is the currency of life. Food is what feeds the pollinators. Food is what feeds the earthworms. Food is what feeds the birds and the insects. So food is for all. So when you say, how do we grow the food, enough food? We can't afford to grow food in ways that we exterminate our other relatives in the earth family. You've got to nourish them too. But the beauty about symbiosis is the more you, the, you nourish them, the more they give you. Our research in, at Navdanya has shown if you want to get in touch with us, you can write to earthuniversity at navdanya.net. 
but our research has shown that when you don't spray pesticides and you have enough pollinators, the pollinators increase your food production 30%. more. So that's how we feed the world. So we could grow a lot more food, more lot more real food. food, real food, healthier food, that mm-hmm. feed not, more people, not empty commodities, and preserving biodiversity. Yeah, exactly. While we add it, yeah. That is also interesting that you mentioned Mr. Bill Gates. Yeah. Um, a lot of people would know Bill Gates as a philanthropist, someone who worked to. Um, enhance the health of the global population through his um, healthcare initiatives. But in your work, you mention how he have been using his privilege and his money to rob the world of healthy access to fair, healthy nutrition. Um, if you were to spend a day with Mr. Bill Gates, what would you do? I don't think... Mr. Bill Gates can spend a day talking to anybody. <laughs> you know, when I was doing my book, Oneness Versus One Percent, which I've written with my son, because I don't know the layers of the financial world and as it was changing. And I really woke up to the fact Bill Gates was in the driver's seat for so many issues when the Paris Climate Summit took place. Now, the United Nations is supposed to be a membership of countries. Yeah? And at these summits, heads of state get together. But in Paris, it changed. Mr. Gates was up on the stage, and he was telling the heads of state what they should be doing. Genetic engineering, geoengineering, you know, changing the climate intentionally. And I said, Some, something has shifted in power. So we decided to understand what is shifting. And basically what has shifted is that because of deregulation, the financial systems are growing very unregulated. It's a bit like the cancer cell, you know? In our body, the cells are dying and renewing and dying and renewing, and no healthy cell grows limitlessly. The only thing that does not know how to stop growing is the cancer cell. And it kills the organism, which it infects. So because of globalization, WTO, deregulation, which uh, made Indonesia, you know, instead of uh, soya being growing country, and soya, GMO soya importing country. <clears throat> but it also led to huge accumulation of finances because they're magical ways of making money. 70 to 80 times more finance in the world than the real economy. Yeah? And then a whole new group of asset management funds, firms were created, where all this money is kept. Now, these are not banks. Mm. They're private asset management funds, the Black Rocks, the Vanguards, the State Streets. And, and then, just like in the 30s, when Rockefeller was controlling everything from the banks to the big pharma to to working with the Nazis, uh, IG Farben, there was Standard Oil IG Farben, one company. They provided the oil and finance, and the Germans provided the chemical knowledge to make the chemicals to kill people and the agrochemicals. In a similar way now, Bill Gates, who'd grown so big, was asked to copy Rockefeller. Now, your image is getting, you know, you're becoming known as a rich capitalist, create an image of being a philanthropist. Now in America, for those of you who are from that country, you will know that the way the tax laws work is if you put money in a philanthropy, you have huge tax savings. Yeah? 
Philanthropy in America is a tax-saving enterprise, but it is also investment enterprise. And so in that book, Oneness Versus 1%, we realize that every field where Mr. Gates gives money, it seems as philanthropy, he is creating a new market mm. of monopoly. Just two examples. Mr. Gates now controls the seeds of the world. He gives tiny bits of money to a seed bank, but then all the seeds are accessible to him. And you might have heard he made 50, 54, 52 billion in the vaccine investments. And then he pulled out, just in the right time. 52, he said, I haven't invested more profitably in anything else. So we wrote the oneness versus 1%, but then I realized this was in every field. It was in education, it was in health, it was in media. He controls the media of the world. It was, of course, in climate, environment, uh, agriculture, food. He's the biggest driver of what I call fake food. Fake food is lab food. Now, ultra-processed food has al already made us very sick. But lab food is ultra, ultra, ultra processed food with synthetic ingredients. And he's offering it as a climate solution. Yeah? So no matter what you touch, his philanthropy is creating a new market. Even this thing, the new GMOs, the CRISPR research, all funded by him. Mm. All. The Berkeley as well as the Cambridge. And when they fought for patents, he funded both. So it didn't matter who would win, because it would be him. He has a company called Editors for control over the patents in the new gene editing patenting that he's doing. So we have another book which you might want to look at if you want to go deeper. I asked the movements working in different fields, the education movement, the health movement, the media movement, and I asked them to do a chapter of what's happening to their field. And this book is called Philanthrocapitalism and is published by Synergetic Press in the United States. I'm learning so much just in this one session alone, building my argument next time I sit with the government officials. <laughs> but you know, one more thing, let me come back to. I, I mentioned the green leaf as the very basis of life, the basis of food, the basis of our breath, the basis of our oxygen. The other day he was saying, I'm the biggest protector of the environment. I know I've, uh, no one has done more than me on climate. And then the media person asks, like what? Investments. When he says, I've done, he's not act actively planted a garden. <laughs> no, he's put money to make money. Yeah? Because once you, if you were to do the geoengineering, which is actually intentionally changing the climate of the world, you'll need it forever. It'll be a perpetual profit en engine. Genetic engineering, every year you have to renew your seeds. These, these are all perpetual motion machines. So, uh, you know, they, they have, he's invested hugely in something called Climeworks, which are these big, giant suction machines that are supposed to pull out carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. The problem is they've excavated iron somewhere and made steel to run them, you still need fossil fuels. And no one's done the full cost accounting of are you really pulling out or emitting new CO2? So the journalist said, but some people recommend planting forests and trees. You know what yeah. he says? Those are idiots. <laughs> idiots think that plants absorb CO2. The science people know that's not true. Now, if Mr. Gates starts to tell you that plants do not absorb CO2, you know, and his science is basically saying there's nothing like life, you know. If earlier the problem was monoculture of the mind, I would call it now a, a bio-blindness, you know, that everything living doesn't exist, you yeah? So destroy it. He's, he's called poor cows enemy number one. Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. You haven't heard that? No, I haven't heard that. No, that's, you know, when he says, when they talk of fake food, they begin with fake meat. Hmm. And they begin by saying, oh, the cows. The cow's fart is causing the problem. 
The problem is that when cows graze or they have fed the straw, their emissions are part of a biogenic cycle. It gets reabsorbed. The methane comes, but then it gets, it degenerates into carbon dioxide, it becomes part of a cycle. But when you feed soya bean to a cow, of course there's more methane production in the factory farms. But he says in his book, the problem is cows have four stomachs. You know, the cow was wrong. The plant is wrong. The leaf is wrong. Yeah? He says cow has four stomachs and therefore it emits methane. And he's pushed this agenda so hard that in Ireland they want to kill two million cows. In New Zealand they have taxed the animals. In Netherlands they want to wipe out one-third farms. And I always say the cow's not the problem. The factory farm is the problem. Mm. And lab meat, which will use five times more land as feedstock, because nothing grows out of thin air. Everything needs raw material. When they said factory farms will make it efficient, they use 10 times more protein as feed compared to what they produced. Now they're doing exactly the same thing, five times more feed. Mm. And the emissions are 25 times more than livestock. With the full cycle of accounting. Yeah, so I think we really need now our sweet little children's book. The cow does not have four stomachs. <laughs> the science of the green leaf, yeah? <laughs> <It's>, wow. <laughs> I hope it was an enlightening answer for you know a lot of people here that may have not been aware of these problems, of these issues. We have problems with financial institutions and problems with the fact how information is being um, shared and distributed and only we are blind to so many aspects of life uh, support systems that we don't quite understand. It's not, somehow it's not quite in our education systems. And it's incredible how you mentioned the power of corporations and the power of billionaires to drive policies that ended up um, deciding our life and our future and how this planet, um, how we interact with this planet as well. Um, you, you have put so much work from the ground up but at the same time, you have also served on so many high-level panels. You are part of the global conversation. I have a question on, we know that communities, local communities, indigenous people have so much knowledge and wisdom when it comes to how we should be living, how we should be treating our soil, our environment. But then how do we bring those voices to the actual decision-making table. Because so many um, international NGOs, so many donors, so many countries, leaders would say that we need to listen to indigenous communities and local people. We, it, it has been proven that land that is managed by communities thrive, biodiversity thrive. But then how do we bring them into decision-making tables in places like COP? CBD, UNFCCC, and, and places where decisions are made. Yeah. Grassroots communities live life. And they live life in its multidimensionalities. Yeah? And from what I said earlier, life is circular. Life is constant giving back. And therefore, with very few resources, they know how to create abundance. Mm -hmm. You know, from one rice plant, the fact that you still have thatch is because of the paddy. Because I've been saving seeds, and in areas where the, with some areas where they were still growing the old varieties of paddy, I asked, they said, how come you're still growing the old varieties? And they explained to me that the new dwarf varieties, you know, the stems are thin, thick. 
And he says, if we were to make our thatch with it, it would be leaking mm. during the monsoon. It's only the fineness of the old varieties, the straw, that is able to actually create building material. Uh, food for animals. So much abundance. It's really the alternative to oil. Biodiversity is the alternative to oil. Um, how do we... How do, do we get their voices more visible and heard? First is, we have to learn to see in a broader way ourselves. You know? See the full picture. Because if we don't, we become extractors too. Oh, they have this knowledge, I can take it, pirate it, patent it. Mm. This is what I call biopiracy. Mm. And I have two or three books on the issue of biopiracy. Taking an element and putting it into the global market, rather than seeing how it relates to other elements that m create that e economy of sustenance. So, you know, t when the Convention on Biological Diversity was being negotiated, the countries were strong on saying it's our sovereign resource, so Article 3. But there were two articles in that convention that I made a special contribution to. One is Article 8J, which is on indigenous knowledge. We know 80% of the biodiversity today, 2023, is on 20% of the land that still remains in the hands of indigenous people. 80%. So if you want to protect biodiversity, you look towards them. How do they do it? How do they govern? Yeah? The second very important clause was Article 19.3, which is on biosafety. Mm. That if a, gen uh, a genetically engineered organism is released, then governments have an obligation to assess the impact on biodiversity and on public health. This defined the new field of biosafety. And this is what allowed countries to stay GMO-free. And one reason they're bringing the new GMOs, which they say are not GMOs, which are still GMOs, the gene-edited CRISPR technologies, is because they want to deregulate. They want to say, no, 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 this is not genetic engineering, this is nature. But it's patentable. But it's patentable, <laughs> exactly. It's patentable, but by saying, by deregulating, they get rid of the assessments and seeing what happens. And two, they get rid of labeling, so you'll never know when you're eating GMOs. There'll be no difference between organic and this. It'll destroy the organic standards forever. That's why there's a big issue in Europe right now, there's a big fight going on, but across the world. And it's not true that it's a precise technology, because they wanted to make uh, hornless animals. Because you know, in India, and I'm sure it's the same in Indonesia, when we worship the cattle, it's the horns that we decorate. Yeah. Because the horns are the connection to the cosmos. But when you put animals tightly in a factory farm, they use the horns to attack each other. So they, de they, they physically dehorn. So they said, we'll do genetic engineering to have hornless animals. And they said, oh, it's like a word program, cut, paste, no new gene, nothing. Turns out when studies were done by the FDA, they found bacterial genes. Because even the new GMOs use vectors to introduce the gene transformation. So foreign genes are used and sometimes they, they infect the animal <coughs> or the plant. The, in this particular case, the company had said it's totally safe. But the FDA did an assessment and found bacterial infection. And that whole experiment had to be wrapped up. Um, so the issue of deregulation is very, very big. In terms of, of course, biosafety is not something indigenous people bring, but Article 8J of indigenous knowledge is a very important part. 
And then there's a protocol to the Biodiversity Convention called the Nagoya Protocol, which means that if you take anything, you must take the permission, mm. which is what Mr. Gates, dear Mr. Gates, is trying to undermine because we have laws that govern access to biodiversity and seeds. In the FAO, there's a seed law that says if you want seeds from a Bali village, you must go to the community and ask. And if they say yes, you can take it. And the government must say yes. But you can't just take it and patent it. Now, these laws are very strict laws. And Nagoya Protocol says the same for the rest of biodiversity. So what is Mr. Gates doing? He is trying to undermine these laws by shifting patenting to digital sequencing. Yeah? That means even if he has this much seed sitting in the Swalmart seed bank, mm -hmm. they can do the genomic map. But the seed packet tells you this is drought resistant. His map doesn't tell you it's drought resistant. The passport data of the seed tells you it's drought resistant, but he takes a patent on drought resistance. Even though it's inherent in the seed. It's in the seed and it's not in the map. Yeah. You know, it's like the colonials came and just drew lines everywhere. Straight lines through Africa. Strange lines through Middle East. I mean, even the current crisis and war, the Israel-Gaza war, is because these strange maps that were drawn. They just drew lines. You know, what were the British? They, they, they had no role. They just wrote one letter. Just wrote a letter. You know? And if you go to the Middle East, the lines are according to the oil. You know, so what was done for oil is now being done for what's called the new, the green oil of the future, mm. the genetic wealth of the world. You know, so we have to turn to the treaties that recognize indigenous peoples' rights, but over and above that, we have to recognize that we need humanity needs a new relationship with the earth. You know, the old relationship, which is colonial, which is anthropocentric, which is patriarchal, is based on very false assumption, has brought us to the brink. So we need to, to learn from indigenous people and women, what is the right relationship? The first, recognizing the earth is living. The earth is our mother. That's why we've done a, a declaration on the rights of Mother Earth that all relatives in the Earth family have rights and they all have to be respected. Yeah? And all cultures have to be respected. And from those first principles, then you frame the contemporary rights. Yeah? From these four billion years of the Earth's principles, thousands of years of indigenous people's evolution to correct the colonial distortion that reduced the earth to a colony, <coughs> dead matter, raw material. Resources. And, and you know the crazy, if any Australians are here, um, the idea of terra nullius, the empty earth. Yeah? The earth is full. The earth is full of life, the earth is full of beings, the earth is full of a promise for the future. <coughs> wow. Treating the earth as our mother. But, yeah. That's a message that <clears throat> I think a lot more of, I'm sorry, let me just have water. <coughs> Um, a very profound lesson that many of us might have somewhat forgotten along 
the journey of each and every one of us living on this earth. And some of us working to heal our traumas, some of us are working to advance our career, some of us working to make more money. And I've always wondered, you have been doing this work for the past 50 years. That's not a small feat. That's, that's, um, that's a long, persistent journey for you to change how uh, things unfold and how community wisdoms are being respected. How could we bring more youth into this space? As I've witnessed that even in this room alone, I see some young faces. I'm, I don't want to make judgment on how old people are. I see some young faces, but it could have been more um, attractive stories for a lot more youth um, that we have since it's their future that we're fighting for. It's our collective common future. So in the past 50 years, what have you seen change and how do we bring more youth into this movement? You know, when I started, of course, I was a young person. <laughs> um, but what has changed dramatically, especially in the last 15 years, is the digital universe. So this is a festival of writers and readers. There aren't that many young people who are readers anymore. Yeah, they have all this access on Google and now this other thing that tells you you don't even have to read your f textbooks because you're, what Chad, what Chad, what's that thing Chad called? Chad BP. Chad BP. Yeah, it'll make your essay. Just put the three words, it'll write your essay. And when this came in India and they had little youth panels and 80% would say, yeah, it'll be make life very easy. And this young girl said, but we go to school to learn. Where will the learning come from? If some artificial intelligence is doing your essay, where will your intelligence go? It means basically it'll go to sleep. Yeah? So I, I think there is the reality of, of a generational issue on reading. Mm. You know? Our generation grew up, you know, holiday meant a nice book in winter lie in the sun, you know, mm. and read. Mm. It's not an option that much. And I still think we need to start creating readers clubs for young people and make it exciting again. The second part of it is, you know, I work with schools because I realize if we're talking about the future, the future generation has to lead it. So we just did our annual festival, which is called Bhumi, which is the same, I think, in Bhasha, no? Yeah. Uh, Bhumi means one of the words for Earth. And this year we dedicated it to climate change and the future of food. And, uh, and schools prepared their paintings, some schools for the disasters that they've had. Like in the heart of Delhi, we've had so much flooding. Schools were closed for a month. Kids couldn't go to school. In the Bay of Bengal, <coughs> which hit Indonesia and India with the tsunami of 2004, the cyclones are coming more frequently with higher frequency. So the kids from that area were, not, were talking. But then what we asked them to do is work with the elders. I started something called, like we have the Earth University at Anavdanya Farm, where we learn how to return to the Earth. But we also have a grandmother's university, where we put the young people and the older women together. The older women have all the knowledge. And it's the last generation that holds it. Women above 65 are the only ones who know biodiversity. And there's an erosion like that. The kids know how to read and write. The women don't know how to read and write. So we put the kids and the grandmothers together to go to the forest, map all the biodiversity. Mm. The grandmothers talk about this plant is this herb, this plant is edible, 
this is this, this is this. And the kids prepare their, we call them community biodiversity registers. You can start it here. I'm going to start doing that. <laughs> yeah, we call them, so that the knowledge is first not forgotten, but second, by putting the grandmas and the young people together, it, it, it is renewed for the future. Yeah? Atit, the present and the future. Um, we have about five minutes left and I want to give opportunity for the audience to ask questions. Um, okay, someone raised their hands very fast. So I'm and she's young. Yes. <laughs> yes, so I'm going to um, invite you, the Do they person with a black headscarf to stand up and ask uh. the question. Here's the mic. Okay, thank you so much for the opportunity. I'm so nervous right now uh, because, uh, background story, I'm doing a research on environmentalism since I was in um, bachelor degree, so 2020. I'm doing a research on, I'm, I'm using the ecofeminism, ecofeminism theory on my research. And now I'm currently doing a documentary film. One of, his, one of it is your, the one that you're contributed on, uh, which is Our Mother's Land. So yeah, I'm also using your book as my resources. So the thing is, uh, in my school, I can say that uh, ecofeminism is not something that is popular. Like, I can say that I'm uh, alone doing this. So not my, uh, uh, my, the other friends is not working on ecofeminism thing. So yeah, uh, I'm working only with my, one of my supervisor, which thinks that ecofeminism things is a important things to do. So yeah, the thing is, um, it's not some in my university. It's not something that um, being discussed a lot. So I can say that I'm lonely and alone doing this. And with that, I want to say that I want to ask about um, wait how to make it important to be talked about uh, in the higher education societies by because. Uh, one of my supervisors is actually doing on feminism, but she, I, I think that she doesn't think that environmental problem is important, but she's doing on a, a, a feminism, fem, feminism. So yeah, how to combine the uh, eco and feminism? Yeah, how yes. to combine it and makes people realize that it's important to be discussed. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's thank you. So you know, over the last five hundred years of colonialism, which was really colonial commerce, you know? Colonialism was about commerce. It is about taking the spices from India, Indonesia. Uh, you have the Dutch East India Company, we have the British East India Company, but they're identical, yeah. you know? And uh, the charters they wrote were exactly what the Columbus Charter was, you know? Go, go conquer the lands, make it your own. And if you remember in those days, for the Indonesians, it was illegal to grow the spices. So it would be an exclusive monopoly. Uh, and colonialism then created this, you know, it defined power in patriarchal form, linked to commerce. It's not that there wasn't patriarchy earlier, but earlier patriarchy was more about some cultural aspects of life. Now it came right at the heart of the economy. And Maria Mies and me, we've written a book called Ecofeminism. We named it Capitalist Patriarchy. That it's the rule of capital in the hubris of patriarchy. Mm. And you know, it put as the model, the unit was a greedy man. Whereas if in the economy we'd put a loving mother mm. as the unit, we'd have had a very different economy of care. Instead of you know? economy of scale. Yeah. So, capitalist patriarchy defined nature as dead, inert matter, terra nullius, and it defined women as passive objects. The liberation of both, you know, the oppression of both is interconnected. And the liberation of both is interconnected. Because nature is a creative force. We are alive because of nature. And women, as I said, 
are the real creative producers and sustainers of society. If you look at the amount of who does the work, who holds the relationships, who holds society, you know, care requires relationships. So the ec ecology and feminism are part of one continuum. One stops the violence against nature, the other stops the violence against women. But the roots of both are the same. That's why we must address them. We are actually out of time, but I, I think one hour is not enough. <laughs> and I must apologize for others' hands that's raised and being held up uh, for question and answer. I would like to thank you thank so you. much thank for you. this opportunity, for this conversation, <laughs> for the wisdom that you have shared with us.